Now, our first witness this morning is Butch. Well, when the fight broke out, I got stabbed in the back, and I, I pulled my knife and hit him. That was the first person I ever killed. Butch Crouch was a hell's angel who'd murdered people and then rolled over and became a government witness. He was giving up details of this crime only somebody that was there would have known about. What good's a man? In his right hand, he had an automatic handgun and blood over his chest. What exactly happened here? Two people were murdered. A house was set on fire. Because of Crouch, I've been hiding in the witness protection program for most of my life. But I'm done hiding. From C-13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13, welcome to Relative Unknown, a new podcast about the stories and family we can't escape. Download Relative Unknown for free now on Radio.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. So about 10 years ago, I was at the Apple Hotel, which is outside of Tokyo in Japan, and I woke up on the floor. Uh, I was up maybe, I don't know, 20, 30 floors up. And I woke up and I, and I thought, why am I, why am I on the floor? And then I realized the building was shaking and it turned out that I was uh, waking up to uh, uh, an earthquake. Luckily, I, I was fine. I was able to go downstairs, although I took the elevator, which was really stupid. It turns out that I've really been lucky in doing all the different documentaries I've done to sleep all over the place. I've slept on the streets in San Francisco with a, with a homeless person. I've slept on the couch of, of friends of mine who are facing things like cancer or, or living with autism. I've spent many sleepless nights in hotels before things like Anthony Pettis's big UFC fight. Luckily, these days, I'm able to do this podcast and traveling isn't as extensive. And so I get to go home and get proper sleep. And it's not just proper sleep. It's the best possible sleep I could get because I am sleeping on a Sleep Number bed. The new Sleep Number 360 smart bed helps make spirits bright with proven quality sleep. My Sleep Number setting is 50. My partner's is, I don't know, I would need a partner. But regardless, you gotta come in and see the newest Sleep Number 360 smart beds. This is not a bed, it's a brighter you for the holidays. And now through December 24th, Get special financing for 48 months on all beds with a Sleep Number credit card. Subject to credit approval, equal monthly payments required. The new beds are so smart, they sense your every move and automatically adjust to you, keeping you sleeping comfortably throughout the night. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Visit, and this is important, Visit sleepnumber.com slash WRH for what really happened to find the one nearest you. Wait, don't fast forward. I really want to keep the momentum going with our contributors. We have a show here about storytelling and history, and I really do think you, the listener, can become a part of our team. This isn't some ploy, but instead a chance for me to get your opinion and take on the stories that I tell. You just got to go to jenkspod.com slash contributors. Also be sending free t-shirts soon. This podcast is produced by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gewertz, Seven Bucks Productions, and Cadence 13. What Really Happened is written and hosted by yours truly, the world's most flexible documentary filmmaker. Please let me know what you think on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Andrew Jenks. This 
is a story about power. It's Sunday, May 24th, 2009, and the car I'm in is speeding towards Atlanta's Phillips Arena. My friend and coworker is driving, pulling off some Fast and the Furious type of maneuvers. People are honking at us, giving us the finger, and I don't blame them. But we have somewhere to be. I was working on a potential documentary series about a rapper who goes by Mano. Mano and I had smoked and spent some time on the street corners and stairwells in Bed-Stuy, drank until the early hours of the morning during Urban Beach Week in Miami, had traveled to some other places I can't talk about, like NDA can't talk about, and eventually went to Atlanta. That's where we are on this day, May 24th, 2009. And my car is only going faster as we head towards that arena. Me and my small documentary crew are trying to keep up with Mano's car ahead of us. Mano, having spent time in prison and known to not have a kosher relationship with everyone in the rap world, is being driven by some sort of private security detail. We're going to see T.I., one of the most popular rappers who at this point in his career has already sold millions of records and released hit singles with global superstars like Rihanna and Justin Timberlake. If T.I. isn't one of the most powerful figures in the game, he's got to be up there. The thing is, T.I. is going to prison in three days. And so what does T.I. decide to do before being locked up? Throw a farewell going to prison concert. Mano wants to show his support. Once there, there are random celebrities walking around backstage. Some are drinking, some smoking, most, like me, probably doing a bit of both, but really more than anything, just trying to keep up. Literally. People like Mano have a tendency to walk fast. It's always been that way. Mano performs two of his most well-known songs. I then watch T.I. take the stage. He talks about his trials and tribulations, mistakes and hopes for the future, before performing some of his greatest hits. Filming on stage, I see how people look at him in awe. It's a sold-out crowd, about 16,000 people. During extended breaks, I talked to musicians, producers, security guards. I think Tom Green was there. It later dawned on me that a going-away-to-prison concert brings out an interesting crowd. Obviously, the general vibe is bittersweet, but also it felt to me like this crowd was insightful, empathetic, thoughtful. Up until a few weeks ago, I had largely forgotten this night nearly 10 years ago, and it wasn't until the last few days that I even remembered the following. While a performance was going on, I was backstage with some other people when T.I. stopped by to thank different friends and co-workers for coming out. At some point, a security guard named, I think his name was Big Rick, told me about a rapper T.I. had signed to his label. T.I. had been trying to expand his producing portfolio, and this guy said Big Rick was legit. The rapper's name, Meek Mill. T.I. had said about a year before, Meek's style and his skills speak for themselves. On top of that, you can YouTube Meek Mill and you'll see him holding his own in street battles, holding his own on the radio. I think the streets of Philly are behind him. But Big Rick had told me that T.I. may have to part ways with Meek. To be honest, they may have already parted ways at this point, I don't remember. And although the reporting has been different on this, it seems to me the reason for the split was simple. T.I.'s prison time could stall Meek's career momentum. 
and T.I. didn't want to do that. He didn't want to stall anyone's career. Sure enough, when looking this up a few weeks ago, I read that T.I. did part ways with Meek. T.I. would continue to have run-ins with the law, sometimes his own fault, sometimes others. Regardless, T.I. clearly knows talent when he sees it. Or maybe Meek Mill is just that good. Because he's since become one of the most beloved rappers in the world. His first album, Dreams and Nightmares, hit number two on the Billboard charts. His second album, Dreams Worth More Than Money, hit number one. His latest album, Championships, released on November 30th, 2018, features performances from Rick Ross, Drake, and Jay-Z. But something else has been going on in Meek's life ever since T.I. signed Meek. In fact, it all started before T.I. signed Meek. Only a few months before that Atlanta concert in 2010, Meek had been convicted and sentenced for breaking the law himself, possession of a controlled substance, and possession of a loaded weapon. A police officer said that Meek, whose legal name is Robert Williams, had taken out his gun and pointed it at the officer. Now, Meek said that if he did that, one of the three officers on the scene would have taken him out. To that point, one officer later admitted, had Meek pulled out his gun, quote, he would have had one breath to live. Straight up and down. They, himself, the officer, and the others, would have aired Meek out. We're talking closed casket, not open. Regardless of the truthfulness of what the officers said went down, which we'll get to, Meek Mill has been going through a bizarre set of legal issues for the last 10 years. And more often than not, it comes down to something I oftentimes forget about. Probation. Probation ordered by a main character in our story. Judge Janice E. Brinkley. Over the last 10 years, reports are that Judge Brinkley has intentionally not let Meek off his probation. She's reportedly told Meek he could be the next Jay-Z, but needs to change management. She's asked him to give her a shout-out in a song. There's also the time she secretly went to a community event to see if Meek was doing the community service she had ordered. This is something I've never heard a judge do, nor have others in the legal system that I've spoken with. And if you think this is a tale of a white judge and a black defendant, you'd be wrong. Judge Brinkley, in her early 60s, is African-American. It seems like she needs control of Meek Mill. And she'll do whatever she can to hold on to that power. Meek would later say something you'd think he'd be saying in reference to some sort of rival from South Philly. But no. Meek, in this quote, is referring to an elected judge. She is going to bleed me till I'm broke or back in jail. And then the FBI got involved in the case. They needed a certain type of insight, but not the insight you'd expect. They needed someone's help, and it was Meek Mill. It got to the point where the FBI recently asked Meek to wear a mic to secretly record what the judge would tell him behind closed doors. It's as if the rap world turned into The Departed, the movie with Nicholson, Leo, Matt Damon, Wahlberg, and others. It has become a uniquely American story, and in turn, the ultimate story of power. The people who have power and what they choose to do with it. How what they choose to do with that power 
reveals what kind of person they are, all of which will help explain to us what really happened. Welcome to the Blue Horizon in Philadelphia. The Blue Horizon, a.k.a. The Blue, was by and large known as the last great boxing venue in the United States. At one point, Sports Illustrated listed it as the number one place to fight. Capacity for the venue was 1,346 people, although there's a good chance they were packing a couple thousand people in there when they could. When you talk to old-timers, they'll tell you things like what Brett Forrest documented. The Blue was a musty building with no air conditioning, brutal for eight rounds in Philly's tropical summer. Bernard Hopkins got his first win at the Blue. Sugar Ray Leonard fought there as an amateur. The venue was immortalized on the big screen when it was featured in Rocky V, one of the most American films in movie history and perhaps the most well-known film set in Philly. But those days are over. For a few years now, the blue has been abandoned. Outside, it looks like nothing more than a dilapidated brownstone building. Inside, it actually still looks like what it used to look like, just without any people. The boxing ring is still there right in the middle. It's a bright blue color. There are red, white, and blue ropes. You can see where the four rows on the ground level would go. And then above, on three sides, is a wooden balcony section, where the real boxing hooligans probably spent some time. Michael Bozus from Hidden City, Philadelphia wrote, Wire racks loop under the seats, a good spot for stowing a large-brimmed fedora. Gilded wooden medallions ring the trim of the balcony and exposed beams curve gently into the ceiling and frame white plaster. The blue has history oozing out of it. And my point is, it's abandoned, or so they say. I've been lucky enough to go to some interesting places when making documentaries, and if you know anything about locations that are abandoned, they oftentimes aren't totally abandoned. Sure, the reason the place was originally built is no longer, and yes, nobody has taken the place over, and certainly trash is all over the place. Parts of the ceiling have found their way to the ground. The chandeliers are hanging on by a thread. But abandon? Oh, no. As of only a few years ago, and perhaps still the case, you could actually still get into the blue. You just needed to know the secret handshake. Remember, this is Philadelphia. You walk around Philly, you're going to see you're going to feel some serious history. This is the city where you visit the National Constitution Center, the Liberty Bell, the old president's house. It may be just me, but walking around Philly, you're going to be reminded that the dead and the past is very much alive. Come to think of it, the Sixth Sense is based in Philadelphia. Anyway, by 1995, and certainly on the night I'm talking about, there weren't as many professional boxing fights going on at the Blue mostly concerts and different events. But the boxing ring is still there. You better believe it. And on this boxing ring is where Young Jeezy, a heralded rapper from Atlanta known for innovative trap music, along with T.I. actually, is performing to a sold-out crowd. Just outside is a 15-year-old Robert Williams, a.k.a. Meek Mill. And he is rapping. Rapping with confidence and vengeance. I'm no rap connoisseur, but Young Meek is impressive. You can check it out on YouTube if you want. As T.I. said in that quote earlier, videos like this 
is actually how he found out about Meek in the first place. If you'd like, you can also search around on YouTube some more and see Meek taking part in something Philly rappers tend to do quite well. Battle. One of the proudest things I'm uh, a part of is a film festival I founded years ago, a nonprofit called the All-American High School Film Festival. It's become the biggest high school film festival in the world. You can go to hsfilmfest.com. We get thousands of submissions from over 30 countries, and we're always looking to hire. We're looking to hire smart people. And we want to make sure we go to the right places to hire those people. You know what's not smart if you're looking to hire? Going to job boards that send you candidates that aren't even qualified for the role you posted. But you know what is smart? Going to ziprecruiter.com slash W-R-H, as in what really happened, to hire the right person. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education, and experience, and actively invites them to apply to your job so you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over a thousand reviews. And right now, my listeners, all of you, can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. Ugh. We got an exclusive web address here, people. ZipRecruiter.com slash W-R-H. If you love this show, show your support to it and ZipRecruiter by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash W-R-H. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash W-R-H, as in what really happened. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. If you don't know what a rap battle is, simply put, it's two people rapping against each other. One rapper goes, then the other, back and forth. Ping pong, but rapping. Generally speaking, you are rapping lyrics, which are insults directed at the other rapper. Oftentimes, there's plenty of boasting. You can battle through albums or songs, although, at least when I think of rap battles, I think of freestyle, spontaneous, live battles in tough neighborhoods. The rapper with the best combination of originality cleverness, rhythm, storytelling, and viciously personal attacks will typically win. And the crowd, generally speaking, will let you know who has won when it's become all too clear. You're so good, the crowd goes too ecstatic to move on. It's over. Or you're so bad, the crowd boos you off stage and out of sight. Go home. Even though he's not inside the blue, as I watch Meek rap, I can feel the history. Don't forget, the fights that have taken place here are nothing short of epic. Writer Michael Bozes said, Madison Square Garden in New York and the Blue Horizon in Philadelphia. Fabled arenas that have become part of the boxing fabric as a result of the epic duels staged. Although there are no longer epic boxing duels in the venue, just outside, there are some epic rap battles and they get nasty. As the hip-hop online site The Hotbox said, while violence has always been a part of rap, Philly is infamous for what is known as gun bars, punchlines revolving around killing opponents and using metaphors to describe weapons of choice. These bars came with hand gestures and animated gun sounds, 
long before it became famous in rap leagues in New York. In each section of Philly, there was a rapper spitting in front of a camera with dozens of his boys ad-libbing and hyping everything. So while one competitor is rapping, another thing you usually look out for during a battle is what the other rapper is doing while listening. Don't forget they are, in many ways, getting personally attacked. If the lyrics are good, it's not just the rapper attacking you, but the crowd egging them on to go even harder. If you, the opponent on the receiving end, get heated, clearly the rhymes are working. They're eating at you. But if you look unimpressed or apathetic, you're disrespecting the opponent. You're not even paying attention. Man, we thought the day would come when I'm attempting to describe rap battles. But all of this will matter in the long run. There is one video on YouTube in particular that caught my eye. And Meek looks much different than he does these days. A sturdy 6'2", usually sporting a close crop. In this video, he doesn't appear to be 6'2 quite yet, and he is skinny with cornrows. And his opponent, a bit smaller and likely a similar age, somewhere in their teens, is going at Meek. And it's mesmerizing to watch. Not the opponent, but Meek. Who knew someone just listening could be so amazing to watch? Meek appears bored, and it's hard not to stare at his eyes, which usually look off in the distance. His eyes don't just suggest, but make it clear that he is unimpressed. At a certain point, Meek tilts his head back as if to say his opponent doesn't just have bad rhymes, but bad breath. I thought to myself while writing this, all right, Jenks, you're dramatizing this. He's just, I mean, this is part of how a battle works. Let's relax with the hyperbolic wording. I've seen my fair share of rap battles before. You act like you don't care, and then when it's your turn, you rap back. But then it happens. Meek Mill, the moment after letting his opponent finish his last line, unleashes a profound energy. Meek must have been holding a hell of a lot of emotion in. And he brilliantly, at least in my opinion, goes off. He viciously and artistically eviscerates his opponent. Not even close. It's apples and oranges. I realized while watching, it wasn't even about who Meek was battling. It's more that Meek is just really good. It's like when a 14-year-old 6'5 basketball player with legit skills is playing against other middle school kids. You're not watching for the competition to see which team wins. You're watching to witness the phenom. You're watching because you know it's exceptional. You know that one day you may be able to say, hey, I saw that kid play when he was 14. And on top of all of that, and I realize it's a lot, Meek seems to have the instincts of a star. There is one video you can find, look up Meek Mill vs. Tech Part 1 Rap Battle, and go to right around the 6 minute and 39 second mark. At this point, Meek stops battling the other guy. He knows it's time to move on. Not from the battle, but from battling the rapper to performing for the audience. Meek turns and faces the camera, looking directly into the lens. He's now rapping for all of us. Or without knowing it, he's rapping for guys like T.I., saying, you know you should sign me. Many natural-born stars like Meek have certain instincts, oftentimes instincts that aren't hard to see if we look right in front of our nose. In all of the videos I watched, Meek never seems like one to be flashy. He seems more focused, like he's practicing his trade. 
What makes it really cool is that Meek's mom, Kathy Williams, would later tell Rolling Stone, For 10 years, I barely got a word out of that boy. He'd stay in his room drawing cartoons. Then he turned 15 and those hormones hit him hard. He was out there on the corner spitting fire. For Meek and many other rappers, at least in the Northeast, the goal for these videos was to catch people's attention. People ideally in the industry. A good YouTube video could mean you get on a rap DVD, which could get distributed widely, or the other way around. After all, again, this is how T.I. caught wind of Meek. And about a year after T.I. and Meek went their separate ways, something amazing happened. Straight out of a movie. Legendary rapper, record executive, and entrepreneur Rick Ross was in Philly at a local radio station. He asked his Twitter followers which local rapper he should invite to the studio. The overwhelming response, and multiple people told me it truly was an overwhelming response, Meek Mill. Rick Ross then heard a few of Meek's tracks, met him, and two weeks later, Meek was in Florida working with Rick Ross. After releasing a few hit songs, Meek got a call from the best in the business. On May 10th, 2012, his new managers were Jay-Z and his company, Rock Nation, along with my man Jay Brown. Shout out to Jay. They were excited. They knew Meek Mill could become one of the greats. His music already was. But they also knew they had to deal with Meek's biggest opponent. Not another rapper from a rap battle. Not some awful secret Meek hadn't told anyone about. But instead a judge. On the Philadelphia County Court of Common Pleas. It's time to meet Judge Janice E. Brinkley. It's January 23rd. 2007. That night, George W. Bush will give a State of the Union. Beyonce has the number one song in the country, Irreplaceable. Night at the Museum is one of the top movies at the box office. And that very day, Nas releases Can't Forget About You from his album Hip Hop Is Dead. Nas raps about various unforgettable memories, including stories of Philadelphia natives and legends DJ Jazzy Jeff and The Fresh Prince a.k.a. Will Smith. However, Meek Mill obviously is not Will Smith in Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. He doesn't have Uncle Phil to support and help steer Meek's career to big things. Far from it. Meek's father was murdered when Meek was five years old. He talks more about his upbringing in an incredible article written by Paul Solitaroff for Rolling Stone. While still a teenager, Meek lost about 20 of his own friends to murder. He said, quote, I would literally open the door and smell the air outside. Yup, smells like murder today. At this point in 2007, Meek was hoping to get out of the streets. He's definitely getting attention in the rap circles, but Meek may be the only one who knows he'll be in the pantheon of Philly legends sooner than later. Meek knows that he just needs to survive. He saw DJ Jazzy Jeff and Will Smith do it. They won history's first rap Grammy for their work. A Grammy. Meek Mill had his sights on that. But someone else had his sights on Meek, especially on that day. Meek was only 19 years old. Time to meet an important character in this story. Philadelphia police officer Reggie Graham. 
Best I can tell, Officer Graham was in his late 30s at the time. Officer Graham was in fact part of NFU, Philly's Narcotics Field Unit. The NFU was created so that the city would have a group of top-notch police officers who'd wear plain clothes and attempt to infiltrate gangs or drug deals, more often than not looking for major heroin and or crack dealers. And in January 2007, Officer Reggie Graham spots Meek dealing crack. The next day, January 24th, Officer Graham has a warrant for Meek's arrest. This time he comes with a partner, Officer James Johnson. They go to arrest Meek. When Meek sees the officers, he reaches for a gun holstered at his side. Officer James Johnson would go on to say, under oath, that Robert Williams, as in Meek, has the gun pointed right to my head. I fell backwards and tried to take cover. I was blindsided by a 40 caliber handgun, which was Meek's handgun, that was bigger than mine, and I'm defenseless, and I have two babies at home. What do I tell my wife after that? I can't tell her anything. By the time the incident was over, Meek was looking at 19 counts of drugs and weapons charges. But there was little proof, so bail was possible. So college just wasn't for me. It worked out for plenty of people I know. It worked out great. I got lucky. I made a movie about living in a nursing home after my freshman year of college and never really looked back. With that said, I kind of dismiss this thing about having to know exactly what you want to do by the time you're in college, that life should be figured out. But anyway, HBO bought my movie, Living in a Nursing Home, and so I was able to move on and make documentaries for a living. And for that reason alone, for me dropping out of college, that reason alone, I wear movement watches. They too are college dropouts, and they're so proud of it, it's actually part of their marketing. My point, movement watches are actually, this is a fact, I've never worn watches before, and I really do wear my movement watch. It's, it's just a fact. And for very simple reasons. They look sharp, I think, but they're also simple. They don't tell you how many steps you've taken or blow up your wrist with text messages and overly intrusive on life notifications, etc. Movement watches start at just 95 bucks. You're looking at 400 to 500 for the same quality from traditional brands. It's a clean design, minimal, and really quality products. Movement did all of the hard work this holiday season, so you wouldn't have to, and they made awesome gift boxes and packages. If you need help giving the perfect gift this season, but don't know where to start, the guys over at Movement Watches got your back, or they got the back of your wrist, yeah. They've curated all of their favorite styles into special gift boxes for you, so you can absolutely do incredibly well this holiday season without the added stress. Oh, and by the way, Movement has sold almost 2 million watches in over 160 countries. Get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to mvmt.com slash WRH, as in what really happened. Movements launching new styles on their site all the time. Check out their latest at mvmt.com. Go to mvmt.com slash WRH. Join the movement. By the time the incident was over, Meek was looking at 19 counts of drugs and weapons charges. But there was little proof, so bail 
was possible. Kathy Williams, Meek's mother, didn't believe what police were saying about her son. Like any good mom, she also wanted to bail her son out. But she didn't have the money. Had she had more money, it wouldn't have been too difficult. As I read more about this, I decided to call legendary music executive Jason Flom. The New Yorker once said Flom was one of the most successful people in the music business in the last 20 years. But I spoke with Flom not so much about Meek's music, but Meek's story and the larger story at hand. Flom has helped get people wrongfully convicted out of prison many times during his life and is a founding board member of The Innocence Project. He also hosts the very popular podcast, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Remember when I talked earlier about how power will be a theme in this story? Jason Flom is one example of doing all of the right things with power. Flom uses his extraordinary influence to, among other things, help people behind bars. And he knows his stuff. I asked him about this issue of posting bail. You, know, you have 450,000 people behind bars because they can't afford to buy their freedom, quite literally, right? Because they just, they're in jail because they can't post bail. Uh, some of them are as little as $100. But if you don't have it, it might as well be a million dollars. So that's something that's, that's, that's a disgusting, disgraceful aspect of our system. For Meek Mill and so many others in his situation, there is the option of a jury trial or a trial in which the judge hears both sides, the government and the defense, and decides in lieu of a jury. A jury trial takes more time, which means a lot more money in legal fees. It's one of many pit stops after being arrested in which how much money you can give to lawyers or the American government will decide your fate. And forget about bail. Meek didn't have the money for an attorney, so he got a public defender. And if I were Meek, I'd be pissed. It seems like his public defender didn't do his due diligence or really much of anything. It appears this public defender didn't study the material, didn't look for glaring holes in the accounts of what happened. And according to Meek, this lawyer didn't even talk to the other witnesses, the cops on the scene, and other people that were there. And there were several. But before we blame the public defender, context is, as always, vital. I got in touch with Inamai M. Chetier, the director of the Brennan Center Justice Program, a nonpartisan law and policy institute which has several initiatives, including one to end mass incarceration while, believe it or not, also making the country safer. Most people who are arrested and get caught up in the criminal justice system are people without means so that they do end up with public defenders. And, you know, no matter how great the public defenders can be, their caseloads are so high that it's very hard to be able to give someone strong legal representation when you have thousands of clients that you have to deal with on a regular basis. Public defenders, as many of you know, are put in a tough position, oftentimes impossible. I want to reintroduce one of the main characters in this story. And that is the judge overseeing this case, Judge Janice E. Brinkley. She seems like a true Philadelphian, just like Meek. Judge Brinkley got her law degree from the prestigious and Philly staple, Temple University. She has been a judge in Philly for about 25 years and is in her early 60s. The trial began in August 2008. The state had only one witness, 
police officer Reggie Graham. Officer Graham took the stand and under oath said, Myself and Officer Johnson took cover. Mr. Williams, as in Meek, crouched down behind the car, looking like he was trying to give off a shot. Re yelled police and dropped the gun. Mr. Williams, as in Meek, took off running. Meek denied the accusation. He admitted to having a gun, but said he only threw it to the ground when he saw the police approaching. And he said he never dealt crack. He'd later tell one publication, I was 18 and not paying my share, as in rent, so they made me the errand boy. Whatever they needed, toilet paper, blunts, I would run out and get. Yeah, I did weed, sold some too, but sell crack? Fuck no. I had an aunt on that shit. She wound up dying behind it. While the judge heard the case and decided on sentencing, Meek remained in jail. And one thing I've learned through the years is that jail is a very different place to be in than prison. I spoke to Ryan Ferguson, who was wrongfully convicted of murder and spent 10 years behind bars for something he had nothing to do with. What I've found in my situation and many other people I spoke to is the county jail where you are arrested and initially put, you're there as a person who is innocent until proven guilty. Um, That tends to be far worse than prison, a place where you're placed once you're actually convicted of a crime. And that is because there's just no funding for county jails. They don't let you go outside in many cases. They don't feed you properly in many cases. The lights never go off. It's just a, a horrible situation. And then people are happy to go to prison. They're like happy to take a plea deal or get convicted of a crime to get out of the county jail so they can go to prison or they're going to get more food. They're going to get contact visits. They're going to get to go outside and play basketball or whatever it might be. They're going to get to use a gym. They're going to get to use a law library. They're going to have these things that a human being needs for their mind and their body. And in many cases for, for their legal cases to, uh, to be able to actually fight back and, and you know, get justice. Ryan added, To me, the noises and the lights in the county jail are the worst part because it's a, it's a form of deprivation. I think it's a, it's a way that they kind of use to get people to plea out to crimes they didn't commit. Uh, it drives you crazy. Uh, if, if you can't close your eyes in darkness, I mean, scientific studies have proven that you don't sleep as well, that depression rates go up. There's all types of issues that go along with not sleeping in a dark environment, not sleeping in a quiet environment. Ryan spent over a year and a half in jail before being convicted and going to prison for what would turn out to be another eight years. Eventually, for Meek, in January 2009, it was time for sentencing. Judge Brinkley found Meek guilty of seven charges, and this included two felonies, carrying a firearm without a license and drug possession with intent to distribute. She sentenced him to 11 to 23 months in prison and seven years of probation. I've seen some articles say she could have given him more time. Many have said that this was too much, and I found that either way, when our story is finished, it'll all be pretty clear. Meek spent five months in jail before leaving in June and paroled under house arrest. And perhaps most important in all this, despite walking out of jail, he had at least seven years of probation hanging over his head. I was curious what Meek's time in jail and then prison was like. I really wanted to hear from him. 
I've worked with Rock Nation, his management, and Jay-Z's company in the past, and reached out to their CEO, but Meek wasn't able to talk for our podcast. Between his legal standing and an Amazon documentary series he's currently working on, he just couldn't do it. While we were at it, we reached out to the judge and a lot of others involved in this case, and they wouldn't participate. With that said, the purpose of jail is to receive punishment for your actions, of course, but it's also intended to correct a prisoner's prior behavior. After all, as we all know, they are called correctional facilities. I've interviewed people in prison several times over the years. A woman's prison in Texas when I interviewed a mother who had taken part in beating her child, a maximum security prison in Missouri several times for two different men convicted of murder, and I've gone a couple times to the Robison Correctional Institution, a medium security state prison in North Carolina. I only say this to be transparent. I have a bias feeling when it comes to jails and prisons. On a very foundational level, it seems like a broken system, both in my own experiences and statistically speaking. Seeing as Jason Flom has been doing this for a long time, I asked him about the efficiency of jails and prisons. Despite my love of endlessly mocking TED Talks, I do enjoy them, and Flom is the only person I know who has done a TED Talk in a maximum security prison in, wait for it, Uganda. Like I said, Flom is a legend. Are most prisons actually correctional facilities? Uh, Not in this country. I think they may have been intended to be so, but it seems like something went horribly wrong over the past uh, couple of generations or more, and it turned, the focus turned from rehabilitation to punishment. Jason added something I didn't know. There's no evidence that shows that locking people up in large numbers or in any numbers reduces crime. I think it actually is the opposite. I think that social scientists, most of them would agree that it it actually increases the rate of crime. Judge Brinkley seems to have used probation in potentially deceptive ways. Paul Solitaroff, who wrote an incredible piece on Meek Mill, said, it became a grim ritual. Each time Meek dropped a record, she'd jail him for some violation or restrict his travel. For instance, in July 2014, Meek violated parole by not reporting to his probation officer and not seeking permission before traveling outside of Philly. Judge Brinkley gave him five months in jail and tacked on an additional five years of probation. The next year, 2015, Meek dropped a new album, Dreams Worth More Than Money. Just around this time is when Judge Brinkley said she had found out Meek tested positive for Percocet, which he had been prescribed after having his wisdom teeth pulled and then admitted to becoming addicted to them. As the album went platinum, Meek went back to prison for another six months. He couldn't promote his new album. He couldn't tour. Most in the business would agree he lost millions of dollars. Power and leverage seems like something Judge Brinkley has been playing around with, using to do whatever she pleases. What unfolds in the case of Meek Mill is this judge using this power in very specific ways. Jordan Sieve, a lawyer on Meek Mill's current defense team, has outlined several examples. I actually found a slew of examples in available transcripts, not just Meek's Post-Conviction Relief Act from February 2018, but one from February 5th, 2016, Courtroom 90 in the Court of Common Pleas. 
With these transcripts, I've been able to dip a little bit inside the courtroom. What has actually been going on in there? Well, when you read these transcripts, new characters begin to emerge. First is a man named Charlie Mack. In certain parts of Philly, they call him the Godfather. The Godfather has a deep voice. He's a big guy, 6'7". Guesses on his weight vary. I tend to see somewhere in the 275 range. He's impossible to miss. And watch some video of him, and you'll see he's got a natural athletic flair. He looks like he's out of a movie. The voice, the swagger, the look. He's also had a tough life. His parents split at a young age, he's nearly died several times, and two of his brothers have been murdered. The Godfather, at times, seems to have had the best of intentions. He's Will Smith's former bodyguard, and best I can understand, soon after working for Smith, he became a talent manager. With that said, Rolling Stone has reported that The Godfather was once affiliated with a dominant drug gang in West Philadelphia. I mean, there's got to be a few reasons they're calling you The Godfather. I couldn't get in touch with him, but would welcome him on the show. Documents I read through show that during the fall of 2009, after Meek's first sentencing, Charlie Mack, the godfather, went looking for Meek, which couldn't be hard seeing as Meek was under house arrest. Kona Howard, one of Meek's managers, has said that the godfather arrived and said to Meek, sign this management contract and I'll get you off this shit. It was a two-page contract, Meek signed it. And when Meek next appeared in court, with that document in hand, he was released from house arrest. The Godfather proved to have some serious power, albeit suspicious. Meek was now out of house arrest and prison, but he was still under probation, which Judge Brinkley monitored along with his probation officer. And now his career was being managed by the Godfather. This could have worked out, but Meek says that what ensued was fairly obvious corruption. Charlie Mack, the godfather, would take 20% off the top of any money made and expense a variety of other things. Meek would later say the godfather would charge for everything, quote, for every bag of chips. When Meek dropped a mixtape and sold 100,000 copies, the godfather gave Meek a check for three grand. Luckily, after Rick Ross signed Meek, Meek was able to let go of the Godfather. Well, sort of. He was able to let him go after paying the Godfather an additional $25,000. Judge Brinkley wasn't happy about this. All you have to do is read the transcripts or even some of the basic reporting on the trial. Her infatuation with Charlie Mack started at an early stage. December 17th, 2012. Judge Brinkley says to Meek's management at the time, The other manager, Charlie Mack, really didn't have no problems scheduling. He understood all that. I don't know how or when you all got involved, but he didn't have none of these problems. Meek didn't have no problems with the other manager, so you all let him down this time. March 2013. It was when the defendant got new management that apparently there became some miscommunication about travel, and I said that before, and I'm saying it again. As Charlie Mack, as the godfather, is discussed, I discovered another character that comes to life in these transcripts, and that is the probation officer, who Judge Brinkley assigns especially for this case. Meet probation officer Trace Underwood. 
On page 27 of the February 2016 trial transcript, probation officer Underwood harps on why the Godfather wasn't retained as Meek's manager. What I like about Charlie, he is not invested in Meek Mills. He is invested in Robert Williams, which is Meek's real name. He is invested in your life as a man. He said he is not invested in Meek Mills. More things began to pop up as I read this transcript. There is Judge Brinkley, Probation Officer Underwood, and also Assistant District Attorney Noel Ann DeSantis. Although it doesn't appear in the public transcript, reports are that on that same day, February 5th, 2016, the same day Probation Officer Underwood spoke at length about Charlie Mack, Assistant DA DeSantis said to Meek and his lawyers, Are you willing to work with Charlie Mack? Because when he managed the defendant many, many years ago, things were run very smoothly, and the judge's orders were completely adhered to down to a T. People in Meek's corner couldn't believe the growing role Judge Brinkley seemed to believe she had in Meek's life. Actually, not just believed, but the role she was playing in his life. It felt more like a therapist meets mother meets police officer, opposed to a judge. Judge Brinkley appeared aware of what Meek and the media began saying about her. She said in court she didn't want people to think she had an interest in who was managing him. Quote, I don't want the record to suggest who your management is or not. This made it seem like Meek's probation officer, Underwood, and assistant DA DeSantis were the ones in charge. But Meek's attorneys have pointed out that Judge Brinkley is the one who made a point of saying she picked, out of many options, Officer Underwood to be Meek's probation officer. At times during this ordeal, Meek would go into Judge Brinkley's chambers for what more or less were status updates. Sometimes Meek and his lawyers had a question or concern they wanted to bring up. Other times, the meetings were initiated by Brinkley. She would ask him questions about why he wasn't checking in at the right time, getting the wrong name of a town he was touring in, fairly common mistakes. It seems like a lot of scheduling errors. If you want my opinion and only that, I see this in two parts. Part one, it seems like Meek could have done a better job staying on top of providing information to the courts about exactly where he was, especially seeing as a big part of probation is making sure the court knows where you are. Part two, practically speaking, it's awfully hard to say part one with a straight face only because you're talking about a job and it is a job being a performer in the hip-hop business where nothing is on time. People are late, details can be overlooked. I remember I used to joke with Mano that if he told me to meet him Monday at 3 p.m., I'd be totally happy if he showed up at 3 p.m. on Tuesday. I mean, whether it's rap or rock and roll, it's a stereotype, but it's also kind of true. Meek could control that, but only to a certain extent. During one of these meetings in the chambers, which typically are not recorded or even documented by a court transcriber, Judge Brinkley met with Meek, his girlfriend at the time, Nicki Minaj, and his lawyers. Some reports say either one or multiple executives from Rock Nation were there. Some reports say the assistant DA was there as well. Some don't mention either. According to Meek and others in the room, Judge Brinkley asked Meek and his girlfriend, Nicki Minaj, to do a remix of the Boys to Men hit song On Bended Knee. Apparently, 
Judge Brinkley also asked that they shout her out in a song. Nikki, perhaps believing the judge was kidding, began laughing. But Meek knew better. He told Nikki not to laugh. Meek would later say in an interview, I tried to tell the judge, all respect, but that ain't me. I'm a Philly street rapper, not a bubblegum dude. Judge Brinkley said, fine then, in a real sarcastic way. Suit yourself. The other factor that I find relevant to this story, patterns of different individuals. It's interesting because the judge seems to misunderstand Meek. At least her sentencing patterns suggest this. If you don't understand Philadelphia rap battling, if you've never heard of gun bars, if you can at least empathize with the murder that has surrounded Meek Mill's entire life, then I think it's very easy to misunderstand his controversies. Beef with other rappers, controversy with pastors, and provocative lyrics. But that debate isn't part of our story. Because that debate has nothing to do with whether or not Robert Williams, a.k.a. Meek Mill, was dealing crack and pointed a gun at an officer on that day, January 23rd, 2007. For Meek, his fame was growing, and he had money, which got him better lawyers, which meant more resources to discover what was really going on. Francesco Petrarca was born in 1304, an Italian scholar and poet whose philosophy and literary works influenced the birth of the European Renaissance. Francesco was one of the earliest poets to champion the use of Italian over formal Latin in his work, what a rebel, writing over 317 Italian sonnets, how prolific, about the love of his life. Her name was Laura. In 2003, researchers who discovered and studied the body thought to be Francesco tested his DNA and found that he belonged to Halogroup J2. And guess what? I belong to Halogroup J2. I am in many ways related to one of these great European Renaissance poets and lovers. Where is my girlfriend at? Now, through December 25th, the 23andMe DNA kits are on sale. 23andMe helps you understand, in an incredible way, what your DNA can tell you about you and your family history. Not only that, and this part was really exceptional for me, 23andMe Health and Ancestry Service includes more than 90 personalized genetic reports that offers DNA insights on what makes you unique. It's easy to do. You simply spit into a tube provided in your 23andMe kit, register your sample to your personal 23andMe account, and in a few weeks receive your personalized online reports. If I can pull it off, anyone can. It's a chance not just to discover your heritage, but find out some serious stuff, like a wellness report which shows what you're genetically predisposed to, to more of the interesting stuff that you've always been wondering, like the ability you have to match a musical pitch, or whether you really have those genes that makes it more likely that a mosquito is out to bite you. Now, through December 25th, get 30% off any 23andMe kit. Order your DNA kit at 23andme.com slash WRH. That's the number 23andme.com slash WRH, as in what really happened. Again, that's 23andme.com slash WRH. 
Swell Investing wants everyone to know how easy it is to get started in investing. To prove this point, here are some things we do all the time that are way more complicated. Making French press coffee. Keto this, carb that. Keeping up with the flurry of political news. What political news? That's complicated. But investing is not. Actually, it can be pretty easy when someone else does the complicated work for you. Swell evaluates thousands of companies and builds diversified, solution-focused portfolios. Every company selected works to solve today's biggest global challenges. Think clean water, renewable energy, or disease eradication. And the best part, you won't sacrifice returns while making an impact. Stocks of companies with high environmental and social impact have actually beaten the S&P 500 for 25 years. So yeah, why not invest, make an impact, and secure your financial future? It's like guilt-free capitalism. <laughs> like that. And it's easy to get started with Swell. Right now, What Really Happened listeners get a $50 bonus Wow! when they sign up at swellinvesting.com slash WRH. If you follow the money, you can see just the difference it made for Meek Mill to move on from Charlie Mack, a.k.a. The Godfather. Meek went from making $3,000 a show with Charlie Mack to after signing with Rick Ross making about $50,000 a performance, and this was only six months later. With attention growing around Meek's rapping prowess, Nas, who had dropped his album Hip Hop Is Dead on that very same day Meek was apparently seen selling crack, said around this time, Meek Mill is the next one to take the rap game over. But while all of this was going on, Meek's court cases, the back and forth with the judge, the probation officer's involvement, and much more there's something else happening that I realized is relevant to this case. In 2013, the Narcotics Field Unit, the NFU, found themselves in a major scandal after an investigation by the FBI. Good morning, everyone. We have some breaking news just into our newsroom. Sources just confirmed to our investigative reporter, Walt Hunter, federal agents arrested six Philadelphia police officers this morning in connection to federal corruption charges. This is the result of a two-year federal investigation. This was led in part after the FBI caught one of the officers, Jeffrey Walker, engaged in suspicious activity, including stealing money from drug dealers that he had arrested. Officer Walker decided to cooperate, getting only two years in prison, and in turn provided damning information on others, at least six officers, and the crimes that they had committed. This included charges alleging they beat, kidnapped, and stole more than $500,000 in drugs, cash, and property from suspects between 2006 and 2012. But again, check out the timeline of this. This corruption took place from about 2005 to 2012. And so who was one of Officer Walker's partners? Reggie Graham, the same officer who said he saw Meek Mill dealing drugs that day. The same Reggie Graham who took the stand, the only officer to take the stand, and say Meek was guilty. It turns out Officer Walker had worked a great deal with Officer Graham. Officer Walker would go on to do interviews with the Philadelphia Inquirer and Daily News. He revealed that during one raid in 2005, Officer Graham and himself found a pound of cocaine in what was described as a black satchel bag with a large amount of money. They stole chunks of cash. 
Officer Walker said of both he and Officer Graham, from 2002 on, we were basically stick-up guys. We'd lie about probable cause, get an ADA to write it, and knock down the door on a known supplier. Officer Walker continued, and this part is pretty incredible, quote, I would steal with Reggie Graham. There was stealing in that whole squad, but these are the people I was basically breaking bread with. That boy, as in Graham, lied like it was second nature. Officer Walker also made a point which you can't prove, but logic does suggest is correct. It's a point Meek Mill has made many times, and that is this idea that Meek pulled his weapon out and pointed it at the officers. Meek's version has always been that he was getting rid of the weapon, certainly not pointing it at anyone. Officer Walker said in a statement, essentially, for people to imagine what would have happened had Meek pointed that gun at the officers. The second he raised that weapon, he would have had one breath to live, straight up and down. They'd have aired him out. We're talking closed casket, not open. If Walker's statements about Officer Reggie Graham weren't enough for me to question his truthfulness, what was revealed in 2017 surely would. According to the Philadelphia Inquirer, the district attorney's office in 2017 secretly compiled a list of Philadelphia police officers with a history of lying, racial bias, or brutality in a move to block them from testifying in court. And guess who was on that list? Officer Reggie Graham. This led to an even larger story. As it turns out, this top-notch police force, the Narcotics Field Unit, NFU, are top-notch at a few things. Unfortunately for the people of Philadelphia, the NFU have a long history of corruption. At one point in time, the NFU was known for, ready for this, robbing bodegas. For those not familiar with bodegas, they were robbing convenience stores, places that sell a little bit of everything. Police would find a reason to enter. According to the Cato Institute, quote, the Philadelphia officer's excuse for their raid on Jose Duran's bodega was the same as their excuse for other bodega raids. He was selling grocery Ziploc bags, and Pennsylvania law makes it unlawful to sell containers that a seller reasonably knew or should have known will be used to store drugs. The cops methodically snipped the wires to seven or eight security cameras around the store, and Duran said nearly $10,000 in cash, cigarettes, batteries, and other goods then mysteriously vanished from the store. The Daily News has reported that there were upwards of two dozen merchants with allegations of police misconduct. And what happened with the investigations into all of these raids on bodegas? I can't find much. The Daily News reported that they could not find a single merchant who said they had been called to testify before a grand jury, which mystified several former federal prosecutors. It may also be a reason that no criminal charges were ever brought against the officers. The five-year statute of limitations has since run out, meaning nobody can do anything. Said Danilo Burgos, the former head of the Dominican Grocers Association, they played the clock game. They let time run out. At this point, I started to understand that the official reports I was reading, the police filings, couldn't be trusted. I also realized one person who seems to have been truthful the entire time, Meek Mill. And I say this because Meek said from the beginning that he had a gun. He said from the beginning that he had dealt drugs, but it was weed, not crack. He could have, but never lied about it. 
he also said officers had bashed his head. And when you look at the mugshot of Meek Mill after the altercation, it's disturbing. He has a bandage that runs down the side of his left temple. His left eye is swollen and barely open. He also has a right bandage covering his right eyebrow and the upper portion of his eye. This photo matches with what Meek had been trying to say all along, that he wasn't simply stopped on the street, pointed a gun at police officers, and began running. Instead, Meek Mill was on a stoop at his cousin's house. Suddenly, a Dodge Charger pulled up. Officers came out of the car yelling police. Meek knew to immediately toss the gun. Quickly, one cop grabbed Meek by the arms and arrested him. Two of the other officers grabbed Meek's feet. They then walked up the steps, past the porch, and smashed Meek's head into the door, using Meek's head as a way to get inside. Obviously, a simple club or baton could have done this. According to Meek, once inside, the officers, holding him up by his feet and shoulders, smashed his head against a coffee table. He began going in and out of consciousness. Meek was bleeding from the mouth and his eye sockets. This is where I think it's important to remember that there were also other people, other witnesses in the house. This included the owner of the house, Rasan Parker, who said Meek was yelling, I ain't done nothing. Why y'all beating on me? Another of Meek's cousins who was there, William Bailey, great name, added, then a few of them, the police, went upstairs to search our rooms. Another witness, also a cousin, Akeem Parker, added that after they searched the rooms, they came back down with a bag of money. It was 30 grand in cash. Now, obviously, it's not as if these guys had 30K from tips they made working at the local food bank, but according to Rolling Stone, they say that Akeem was the house's weed supplier. Regardless, Officer Graham, with the money in hand, yelled, Jackpot. And again, Officer Graham was the only witness to take the stand. One could say, well, of course the cousins will tell Meek's side of the story, so any testimony they gave would be suspect. But even if you don't believe them, we now know from Officer Walker that, in fact, Meek's account of what happened, not Officer Graham's, is where we can find a truthful narrative. And then, for me, is the final three straws. I mean, we're past the point of straws, so whatever. This part makes it almost all too hard to believe. One, there are upwards of 20 people who say Officer Graham couldn't have even witnessed Meek dealing drugs in the first place on that day, January 23rd, 2007. Because, believe it or not, Meek was in a courtroom. Not for anything he had done, but a few miles away, he was in a courtroom supporting one of his cousins who was in the midst of a trial. Two, Officer Reggie Graham didn't follow protocol and never lab tested what he said was crack. So the main piece of evidence doesn't even exist. Three, in 2017, a list was unsealed. This list included a group of blacklisted cops who the district attorney's office didn't trust to testify. Their pattern of corruption was too obvious. And yeah, Officer Graham was on that list. For years, Meek was going in and out of the courtroom, prison, house arrests, to concerts, studios, and rap battles. 2017 is when everything seemed to go from bad to worse, and also from weird to extremely bizarre. Meek was at the St. Louis International Airport when two men on the airport's staff asked for a picture. Meek said some version of no, he'd later say he had to get on his plane. 
The two airport employees complained that it was no way to treat his fans. This led to some talking back and forth between Meek, his friends, and the two employees, which then led to punches getting thrown and a fight. By the time it was over, Meek and the two men were arrested. This arrest in St. Louis obviously violated Meek's probation. And then came the Jimmy Fallon of it all. Meek, in late August 2017, still on probation, was making an appearance on The Late Night Show, which was fine. After the show, he saw some kids riding dirt bikes. And if you know anything about Meek Mill, he loves, he's always loved, dirt bikes. It's a passion. And in particular, wheelies. Now, I live in New York City, and it's not uncommon to see younger people doing wheelies, riding a bike with the front wheel in the air. In fact, according to Meek's current lawyers, the police that night saw Meek and others riding around and didn't do anything. But, and this is where you do say, oh man, Meek, why'd you let someone do that? Why didn't our buddy know better? A friend of Meek's filmed Meek riding the bike and put it on Instagram Live. And guess who catches wind? Judge Brinkley. Or at least someone with ties to Judge Brinkley. Because the day after the wheelies on Instagram Live, the NYPD stopped Meek Mill when he was leaving a charity basketball game. They ordered him back to the Philly courthouse. According to one of Meek's lawyers, quote, I talked to a squad commander from the NYPD who said, this isn't my bag of shit. It came from way above me. That's all I know. Shortly thereafter, the felony count was reduced to a misdemeanor and then dismissed. Regardless of what you think, whether wheeling around on a bike is a crime or not, the government didn't seem to think so. They had dropped it. Not only that, but the district attorney didn't see any need to penalize Meek for the minor infraction, nor did the probation department. Both opposed jail time. But Judge Brinkley had other plans. She barred Meek from performing and traveling outside of the city and the larger Montgomery County area. For a musician, can you imagine... That'd be like telling a surfer, sure, you can surf, so long as you stay in Philly. On November 8th, 2017, Meek returned to court. Judge Brinkley did something few expected. She denied him parole and then sentenced Meek to two to four years in prison. She cited technical probation violations, including the incidents in New York City and St. Louis. She also said a urine specimen showed Meek was using the prescription narcotic Percocet, which he had become addicted to after a root canal. Meek did say he sought treatment for the addiction and was no longer using the drug. Also, Judge Brinkley cited Meek and Rock Nation for scheduling concerts after her August 17th order, barring performances outside Philadelphia and Montgomery County. I could be wrong, but to me, this is when the story of Meek Mill versus the United States judicial system really took off into the mainstream press. And I think it's because Meek's situation was now far more clear. Two to four years of prison for riding a bike, getting in a fight with some autograph seekers, and urine samples for a drug that he had stopped taking. All of this results in that kind of time behind bars? This is when I started to realize how probation is actually a major component to this story. Because as much as I had thought about this being potentially a story of wrongful conviction, it's really a story about the power of probation. I have made the documentary Dream Killer about Ryan Ferguson, who was completely innocent of doing anything. We did the podcast last year on Daniel Green, 
innocent of murder. He wasn't even there, but he did help dispose the body afterwards. So it wasn't as simple as Ryan's case, a level of nuance. But neither really dealt with the intricacies of probation. And I didn't realize how little I knew about this part of our criminal justice system. Remember, Meek was sentenced to seven years of probation. Inamai Chetier of the Brennan Center for Justice said, Once you're on probation, you know, a lot of people might think, okay, you're not in prison, that's, you know, that's a good thing. But it's very easy to get revoked back to prison while you're on probation. So right now, there's 4.5 million people on probation and parole. And frequently, if you don't make a meeting with your parole officer or if you test positive for um, alcohol or you end up traveling outside the county when you're not supposed to, all of those things can make you get revoked back to prison. And that's what happened to Meek Mill. And I think, you know, his case really shows that once you get in the system, it's very hard to get out and how easy it is to um, get caught up in this cycle that continues taking you back to prison. Um, And the other thing to mention on that point is just that there are about at least 60 to 80,000 people who are behind bars just for technical parole violations. And that doesn't even include probation. So I think it really just points to how the system, I mean, it really is mass incarceration. It's, it's touching so many people and it's so hard to get out of the pathway to prison. About 10 days after the sentencing, Jay-Z wrote an op-ed for the New York Times. He wrote, Now Meek is 30, so he's been on probation for basically his entire adult life. For about a decade, he's been stalked by a system that considers the slightest infraction a justification for locking him back inside. He added, Instead of a second chance, probation ends up being a landmine, with a random misstep bringing consequences greater than the crime. Jay-Z also makes a really interesting point later on in the op-ed. Taxpayers in Philadelphia... Meek Mill's hometown, will have to spend tens of thousands of dollars each year to keep him locked up. And I bet none of them would tell you his imprisonment is helping to keep them safer. This circles back to Inamai's work. Frequently people can't get back um, into society and they have trouble reintegrating specifically because it's so hard to get employed once you are caught in the criminal justice system. So if you look at it in that frame, I think that It's also useful for people who care about the economy or who care about businesses and care about the employment rate to understand that this is also something that deeply affects economic justice and economic equality and economic growth. While all of this was going on, this is hard to believe, another investigation started, this time into Judge Brinkley. Meek's new high-powered attorneys told agents they knew at the FBI about what Judge Brinkley was saying to Meek. And so two FBI agents went to Philly. They wanted more proof to see if they had something they could use as tangible proof. In a startling turn of events, they asked Meek to wear a wire. The next time he talked in chambers with Judge Brinkley, he could record the conversation so they'd have the evidence to fully document the outlandish and potentially illegal suggestions she would make. Suddenly, Meek Mill had the power over Judge Brinkley. And, true to form, 
He said he didn't want that kind of power. Or more precisely, he said, in my world, that's called snitching. I'm not sure when Meek said this, but the FBI seems to have been investigating the judge while Meek was in prison. In fact, believe it or not, it was right around this time Meek was put in solitary confinement. Solitary confinement is something I definitely can't imagine. So I called Ryan Ferguson once more. During his early days in prison, he had been set up by other prisoners, it's a long story, and prison officials put Ryan in solitary confinement, also known as the hole. Ryan told me, Administrative segregation is what it's also known by, and it's punishment for prison. It's prison for prison, essentially. If they choose to put you in solitary, there almost is no no recourse. Um, You're just there. And if they say you're going to be there for a month, you're going to be there for a month, right, wrong, or indifferent. There's pretty much nothing you can do about it. I was there for a year. Uh, There's pretty much nothing I could do about that. So whenever they give you the amount of time you're going to spend there, say it's a month, three months, a year, you're literally just looking out of this tiny little concrete box that's freezing and the lights never go off and you're hungry and you can't buy food and you're looking at the next 60 days or 120 days or whatever it might be thinking this, this is it. This is my life. This is all I have, no matter what happens. If you're in there by yourself, which is the true solitary, it's bad, but it's not as bad as um, dual solitary because, you know, you're in there with another person. And when you're in the hole, so let's call it the hole because that's what everyone else calls it. Uh, When you're in the hole, everybody loses their mind. Uh, You're in something the size of most bathrooms. Uh, Where the tub is would be your bed. You have a sink. A lot of times they don't even have a mirror on the wall, so you can't see yourself. They cover the windows so you can't see out. They keep the air very cold. You don't have access to additional clothing. You start to get a little nutty. Reports are that the prison claimed putting Meek in solitary confinement would protect him. After all, a famous and likely rich person in prison may not be so safe. But Meek said he didn't want this. In fact, his lawyers filed documents asking for Meek to be let out of solitary confinement. His lawyers argued that staying there could cause serious psychological damage. Ryan told me about how he tried to handle his time in the hole. Uh, Solitary confinement for the better part of a year. There are different stages. I remember... Uh, my first few days there looking at it and knowing that they weren't going to let me out, knowing that no matter what happened, the next year of my life is going to be spent in this little box with, with no mental or physical simulation, nothing to occupy my time, just four walls, me and cold air getting pushed out at me. Um, it's, it's very heavy. I mean, I've never really experienced anything that was quite that heavy on my mind knowing that I I can't even walk outside. I'm going to be in there 23 and most often 24 hours a day and really didn't didn't have anything to read for months and months. And then uh, I was a big fan of Harry Potter. And so the seventh book in the Harry Potter series came out, the seventh and final book, came out while I was in ADSEC, probably my third month into a year of, of being in the hole. And... My mother uh, came up with this amazing idea um, that she would get with her friends. They got the book, took it apart, and they would send me 
five pages at a time because you only get five pages in a letter. And so they sent me 100 or 150 letters, five pages at a time of Harry Potter. So I get like five letters a day and and I would read, you know, these five pages or 10 front and back uh, as soon as I would get them. And, and so did my son. He was so excited. We had something to read. He didn't even know what Harry Potter was, but he was into it. Uh, I I explained it to him. I was all about it. You know, I was just so excited to get these pages. And sometimes you get the pages out of order. So, you know, you're like, I want to read ahead, but I don't want to miss out on like 20 pages of reading. And then, uh, and then of course, the weekend comes and you don't get mail uh, in prison on the weekend at all. And so there's these two, you know, two days where you're just like, oh, I just want to, I want more pages of my book to read. And um, so, yeah, that was, that was an incredible experience. I thought it just shows you, you know, how much people can care about you. And, you know, like the, my family obviously did amazing things for me, huge things that, that saved my life. They also did small things like that. And, uh, and this is a beautiful thing to see my family and friends step up and send me a Harry Potter book page by page in solitary confinement. And it really, really made that year a lot better. After hanging up with Ryan, I looked up at my producer, Chris. Did you hear what he just said? I was amazed, as I often am, at how Ryan ended the conversation, by being thankful. He didn't end the conversation by saying how he hated the people that had set him up, or some of the officers that treated Ryan inhumanely. Instead, it was Ryan thanking his family and others, thanking them for ripping out pages of Harry Potter and sending them to him. This humility and gratitude seems like a pattern with many people who are innocent yet find themselves powerless when facing the U.S. government. I spoke about this with Jason Flom. There's just people. That's where, you know, that's where I lose the, the plot, you know. It's like, these are just people, and they're Americans, and they're somebody's brother or sister or mother, father, son, daughter, whatever. And they're just people. But the minute they grab you, it's like you stop being a person, you know, you, you, and your humanity is irrelevant anymore. It's just, you're just a, somebody to be, you know, sort of processed. This is where I want to stick to the facts of this case and not go on too much about my findings on larger issues with the criminal justice system. If you study the timeline, there's a fascinating pattern as it pertains to Judge Brinkley. And I'm always looking for patterns when focusing on a story. Apparently, it's what the Philadelphia Inquirer does as well. The newspaper, I just want to quickly say, is the third oldest surviving daily newspaper in the United States, and it's survived by... The Philadelphia Media Network, which is part of the Philadelphia Foundation's nonprofit Institute for Journalism and New Media. The Inquirer has won 20 Pulitzer Prizes. And my main sidebar point in saying all of this is that local papers are integral to a democracy and justice. The Inquirer reported the following in November 2017. Quote, seven times in the last four years, Judge Janice E. Brinkley has sent men off to state prison for violating their probation, only to see them challenge her in appeals. The report continues. A review of other Brinkley sentencings of probation violators shows that Mill's punishment was not an outlier, and every time her decisions have been upheld by a higher court. In fact, a review of the Superior Court opinions in those seven cases shows that Brinkley, a city judge since 93, often follows the same pattern probation extensions that drag on for a decade or more, followed by a final violation that carries a lecture 
in which Brinkley berates the probationers for blowing multiple chances at redemption and, quote, thumbing your nose at the court, which, in fact, she did say to Meek Mill. The article also said, not until Monday, when Brinkley added Philly-born rapper Meek Mill to the list, did the public seem to notice. But despite their cries of injustice and internet petitions for his pardon or her removal, the claim by Mill's fans that the two- to four-year prison term was unusual or excessive might not hold up, if history is a judge. But as it turns out, Meek may be the exception. In February 2018, Philly's DA made an incredibly rare move. He suggested to Judge Brinkley that Meek be released. Officer Reggie Graham was just not a viable witness. Incredibly, Judge Brinkley didn't seem to think this was enough. She decided to schedule a hearing for June 2018. Meek's lawyers appealed this decision to the state Supreme Court. And unlike so many other cases, they decided that since Officer Reggie Graham was the only witness and what he said should have never been considered, Meek was to be released. After serving about seven months in prison, Meek Mill was released on April 24th, 2018. If you're not a rap fan, it was on April 24th that you may have first been introduced to Meek Mill because his release was all over the news. After all, it's not every day you fly in a helicopter from prison to a stadium to perform the ceremonial bell ringing of a lookalike Liberty Bell before the start of a big basketball game. A minority owner of the Philadelphia 76ers, the professional basketball team, Michael G. Rubin, who had supported Meek's freedom, had arranged for the travel. Like I said earlier, Meek Mill is Philly, and Philly is Meek Mill. But this is very different from how most people are handed back their freedom. Jason Flom told me, When they come out, what are they going to do? Right? You come out, if you served your whole sentence, like, for instance, let's just take New York State. If you serve your sentence, right, we're not talking about your parole out. So you got sentenced to 10 years, you come out after 10 years. You get $40, and you emerge from prison with $40, maybe a bus ticket, or maybe they just drop you off at the bus station. You don't have ID. What are you supposed to do? Like, and if you've served a long period of time and your family has died or moved on or you don't have any family, where do you go? It, it's exactly built to fail. I am firmly of the belief that mass incarceration is, it makes our country less safe. Instead of making music, Meek Mill likely found himself working for, well, it's hard to believe. What's happened is over the years, as mass incarceration has taken hold, is that you have inmates who provide basically free labor to corporations that people would be surprised to know. I mean, there's everything from Starbucks coffee cups to some of Victoria's Secret products to, you know, of course, the proverbial license plates. So many things are made in prison. And, you know, inmates are paid as little as four cents an hour. I mean, there's been a lot of in, in Louisiana that can be taxed on that, too. So it's like two cents an hour. When slavery was abolished, they left it. There was a there was a big asterisk, which was that it was only abolished for free people. So that meant that if you were incarcerated, you were still able to be treated as a slave. Does everything that's happened to Meek have to do with him being black? Many people have said race is not a factor because Judge Brinkley is also black. It's a much larger discussion, but. If you were to ask my opinion, I'd say, 
you bet your ass it has everything to do with Meek being black. If it were me, white, shaggy-haired dude, I'd be fine. Because even if the circumstances were exactly the same, the only difference being that I'm white, I wouldn't have been arrested in the first place. More substantial than my own opining is the following. In 2017, the Philadelphia Inquirer reported that, quote, six black Philadelphia Police Department narcotics officers said their two white supervisors were racist and corrupt, unquote. Community leaders demanded that two narcotics officers be removed from their posts. Said the Inquirer, the complaints against the two white cops include allowing a white corporal to park his Confederate flag decorated car on city property, encouraging officers to falsify documents and evidence related to arrests, and denying black officers equal opportunities for overtime and work assignments. The chief inspector, a white man, allegedly referred to black civilians as scum and to black civilian slangs as thinning the herd. Jason Flom told me, I fact check this because every time I say it, it sounds insane. So I say to myself, wait, did you just say that? Because that sounds insane. <laughs> like, Flom, what are you talking about? But the fact remains that we lock black males up at six times the rate per capita of South Africa at the height of apartheid. And then, while we think of Judge Brinkley, we should also think of the system at large. At its very foundation, it is flawed. The intentions are good, said Jason Flom. I am firmly of the belief that mass incarceration is, it makes our country less safe. In June 2018, as reported again by the Philadelphia Inquirer, Judge Brinkley wrote in a 47-page opinion that Meek Mill did not meet his burden of proof in seeking to cast doubt on the evidence used to secure his arrest in 2007 on gun and drug charges and subsequent conviction. One of Meek Mill's attorneys said that Judge Brinkley was acting like a, quote, immature, petulant, ignorant child, adding, I didn't think I could question her ability to be qualified to sit as a judge anymore, but I have now reached a new high. Brinkley said that there was, quote, a lack of investigation into the allegations of Officer Graham's credibility problems, saying, quote, ultimately, the allegations of misconduct related to Officer Graham do not relate to the facts of this case and do not create a question of credibility for Meek Mill's underlying trial and arrest. At the end of the hearing, she said she would need more time to decide whether he should get a new trial. She gave no date by which she would make a ruling. And so, as he has for so long, Meek Mill waits. I think it's really important not to single story anyone in life, to condense them into just one characteristic trait, much less anyone in this story. After watching an interview with Judge Brinkley, I heard her talk about how she tries to give back to the community with a team at Roxborough High School. We take them to one of the very nice boardrooms that they have that's beautifully appointed, that has a great view on, on the city, so they can see how things can be for them if they were to work in one of those law firms. Wow, now how do the kids respond to that? Oh, they love it. Additionally, at one point, the host said this. Well, and it's interesting, because I guess the thinking is that by the time people get into your courtroom, it's really too late to educate them. Judge Brinkley corrected him. No, 
I disagree with that. Oh, really? No, I absolutely disagree with that. There's room for education along the spectrum and love along life's journey at all times. And on top of this, when reaching out to Judge Brinkley, her office got back to us quickly, saying she couldn't speak on the case because it's ongoing. So in fairness to her, she isn't able to really defend herself. Personally, I don't know if she could say anything that would make me think she handled this the proper way. Speaking of single storytelling someone, there is also The Godfather. He founded Party for Peace Celebrity Weekend to benefit Mothers in Charge, a grassroots anti-violence group. He lost two of his brothers to murder and brought together an assortment of celebrities for the annual event, from Gabrielle Union to, of course, a boxing champ, Vernon Forrest. In fact, The Godfather has come out in support of Meek. It's modern-day slavery, and we hear it. It's obviously, I'm saying, the people are speaking. This ain't just some fly by, this ain't no, this some kid I'm saying no people care about. This is somebody the community care about. He employs, I'm saying, his family is large. He got about 14 brothers and sisters in your, in your brother, your brother's yeah. side. He got about 12 on his mother's side. So it's a big family. So most people you see around Meek is his family. This ain't just some people that's hanging on. The, the actual, the way he's sentenced on, it's not a just sentence. It's not. The Godfather has admitted to many mistakes, saying, I came up from hell. I didn't come down from heaven. In some ways, I think I've avoided talking about Meek's personality because that could lead to my losing sight of the case at hand and the larger picture. With that said, I think what Jason Flom told me is interesting. You know, he's out there spending his time and his money. He could be just, you know, doing his thing and being, you know, one of the most revered rappers of his generation, um, enjoying the fruits of his labor. But no, he's, he's, he's as committed as he can be. I think he's going to be a really important part of the of the change that's that's going to come. An article written by Rembert Brown for the Bleacher Report said, after getting to know Meek, that one aspect of Meek's personality that could be easily overlooked is that he's extremely self-aware. He doesn't appear riddled in an identity crisis when it comes to who he is and what he represents. He knows how important he is, who he's important to, and how important he can be if he remains connected to where he's from. Don't bother calling that once famous venue the Blue Horizon. When I tried calling the place towards the beginning of my journey, hoping to hear more stories about boxing or rap battles, an understandably annoyed woman picked up the phone. No, this number now belongs to a private residence. The Blue Horizon closed in 2010. The plan is to tear down the venue to make way for a new luxury apartment complex. Said one local, it's like tearing down the inside of Fenway Park. But for nearly 10 years now, the apartment complex hasn't happened. The venue remains. Philly natives familiar with the project believe the inside could be demolished any day now. But don't forget, this city has an interesting relationship with the past. Getting rid of history isn't easy in Philly. They are a proud people. Earlier, I'd pointed out something T.I. said from back when he had signed Meek Mill. It included the following. I think the streets of Philly are behind him. Philly is a big part of Meek Mill and vice versa. The city is rallied around him. Mike Rubin, the Philadelphia 76ers minority owner, has spent considerable money on a free Meek Mill campaign hosting him at games and paying for billboards all over the city, which call attention to the case. 
In so many ways, Philly has shown how a community can help change, or at least start to change, the system. Meek Mill and Judge Brinkley have been at the center of my story. But there is something much larger at play, at least for me. Because every time I read about those Meek Mill billboards or a celebrity trying to give support to Meek's struggles, I kind of find myself oddly demoralized. Meek represents millions of people who shouldn't be on probation, which in turn costs taxpayers millions of dollars, preventing that money from being used on more purposeful initiatives. If only each one of those victims of the system had a billboard, or fame, or money. They may have talent like Meek has, but not that kind of talent that makes you famous. It's when a person attains power, any person, from Judge Brinkley to Meek Mill, that you get an idea of who they really are. You can unravel their patterns. You get a glimpse into their soul. On February 4th, 2018, the Philadelphia Eagles were in the Super Bowl, playing against Tom Brady and the perennial powerhouse New England Patriots. Meanwhile, Meek Mill was in prison when he heard a song. In his cell, he looked up. The Eagles were running onto the field while playing one of Meek's songs, Dreams and Nightmares. After an incredible and epic game in which the Eagles somehow won, a player in the locker room turned on a song. It was once again Meek Mill. And it wasn't one of his latest hits. It's from 2012, his first studio album. Hearing them sing along, hearing them dedicate in many ways the win to a hero of theirs, shows that there are different ways to spread the message that the criminal justice system needs monumental changes and that probation is a broken system. Hopefully, more communities like Philly, and there are plenty, will rally around victims of the American legal system. Victims who don't have to be perfect to be free. The key is communities of people, not just the renegades like Jason Flom, but everyone. If we all play a small role, then eventually we'll be able to look back and say, yeah, that was what really happened, but not what has to happen. A special thank you to Ryan Ferguson. He has a book out that you can find on Amazon. And you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at LifeAfter10. I want to thank Jason Flom. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. He's also a big supporter of Families Against Mandatory Minimums. You can go to their website, famm.org. Flom also has his podcast, Wrongful Conviction. I also want to thank Inamai Chetier from the Brennan Center. You can also follow her on Twitter at I-N-I-M-A-I or follow the Brennan Center at Brennan Center. Next week on What Really Happened, Kendall Jenner is one of the most famous people on Earth. And so it made sense for Pepsi to feature her in a commercial back in 2017. But the commercial, titled Live For Now Moments Anthem, which never even aired, faced a major backlash for co-opting the imagery and urgency of modern social political movements particularly Black Lives Matter. Who decided this was a good idea? The anatomy of a commercial gone terribly wrong. That's next week on What Really Happened.